this week, I'm celebrating a full year of different cemetery adventures. I'm mixing things up this week a little bit and going completely off script. Because I have so many new followers and because it's been a long time since I did my general background history of American cemeteries, this week I'll be doing a briefer one-part Cemeteries 101. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So, technically, I haven't done 52 episodes, and that's because I took two weeks off when I had my surgery back in July, and I think that there might have been one other week, maybe that Ashley and I skipped last December around Christmas. I can't remember exactly. But anyways, the technical one-year anniversary is September 13th, and I remember that because we purposely launched on Friday the 13th. It's obviously not Friday. It's going to be Sunday this year because it's a leap year. But I wanted to do this, like I said, in the intro for a couple of different reasons. Mainly because the podcast is so different from how it started. If you have been following all along, you know that around episode 19, um, Ashley, just because she had a lot of personal commitments, wasn't able to just dedicate the time that is necessary to produce at least an hour-long podcast once a week. Um, And so I kind of switched gears, and I did things my own way. And I had a certain vision, and that vision is a little bit different than the first 18 or so episodes of the podcast. So um, I am going to be making a new intro to kind of back that up so that if people do start from the beginning, they are not completely lost. I feel like it's definitely been long enough now that I can do that and uh, it's not weird. I have covered a lot of topics in the last 50 episodes I feel like there have been some really interesting specific topics. I feel like there have also been a lot of really general ones. What I want to do today is to give people a Essential Cemetery 101 handbook. That way they know how to talk about different types of cemeteries. Because I know that even in recent episodes, I will refer you back to another episode. Um, From this point onward, what I might want to do is just refer you to this particular episode, and if you want to learn more about a specific topic, then you can certainly go back and look at that. And I get emails from listeners all the time that say that, like, hey, when I first started listening, I picked white bronze, or I picked X topic because it really interested me. Also, realistically, um, I have not gotten to do as many interviews as I would have liked at this point. I have only done... um, four interview episodes, just the realities of living in a pandemic world. I probably could pursue these a little bit more actively, uh, trying to find people in my immediate vicinity. I will confess, that is not my preferred podcasting style. I know there are tons of interview podcasts out there that are incredibly well done. I like one every once in a while. So while I certainly will be doing some of those in the future, I do encourage you, if you do enjoy that style, um, the interviews that I did with Ashley and I did with Sam Beatler and Emily Ford are excellent. They're really, really popular. Um, I always keep Cemetery Sam updated. He always stays in the top five most downloaded episodes of the podcast. Um, So yay for Hunky Cemetery Man. 
Also, Brenda Sullivan of the the Graveyard Girls, who is just a lot of fun. Brenda does a great interview um, when she did one-on-one with me. Again, I'm going to be definitely doing some more of these in the future, and I'm, I'm trying to work that in. The second reason I want to do this is uh, if you follow along on either Instagram or Facebook for social media, I did a Ask Me Anything this week, and I'm going to be doing live videos that go along with that starting tomorrow on Saturday. Saturday and Sunday, that way I kind of break it up because I did end up getting a number of questions and I don't want to try to cram them all in one um, Instagram TV video. Uh, what I will be doing is I will be linking it so that way it posts on both Instagram and Facebook. You can access it either way. But that's going to be kind of a, a new mixed media thing. It's going to be a little different from what I normally do. So rather than doing the questions as an ask me anything on the podcast... I'm going to do it in person so you can see me, and I hate having my picture taken, so that should be fun. But, all right, going into Cemeteries 101. People come to this podcast from a lot of different backgrounds. Some know absolutely nothing about cemeteries. Some people are experts that have been working in the field for decades. So if you are one of those experts... You can feel free to skip this one. But also, I find that a lot of people are still asking me what I consider to be basic questions. And I will say, as somebody who works in cultural resource management, I read a lot of descriptions of cemeteries that are just plain wrong. And I feel like cemeteries can be very intimidating for people who work in architectural history and historic preservation, like I do. I think that they are misunderstood, and I think that Quite frankly, the literature that is available out there about them is very thin. As far as I'm concerned, there is only one book that accurately captures the history of American cemeteries, and that is The Last Great Necessity, which I know I've talked about before. There are other excellent books about cemeteries, but none of them give a full comprehensive history that traces the evolution of cemeteries, how cemeteries are linked to the consciousness of the nation. But that book was published in 1991. So we're talking about a now 30-year-old book. And I think that at some point, somebody is going to have to write another comprehensive book. Um, And there are books that touch on it. Um, I know Marilyn Yalom's book is very, very popular, The American Resting Place. But that's more of a vignette story where she talks about specific cemeteries and she tells parts of the story, but I I don't think it's as comprehensive and as academic. It's a great book. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. But hopefully if you are looking for Cemeteries 101, what do I need to know if I'm looking at a cemetery? I'd like to produce that type of podcast. And that's maybe a longer introduction than I needed to give, but That's always been my goal with this podcast is that people are looking for information out there. People who, for whatever reason, become interested in cemeteries. It might be personal genealogy. It might be that they see a neglected cemetery that they want to clean up. It might be that they want to take care of a loved one's grave. Maybe they're considering their own options for the future. People come to this podcast for a lot of different reasons. So hopefully this gives you just a general overview of what you need to know. Now, if you have not been a long-time listener, I deal in American cemeteries. I do venture outside that 
for certain topics. And I'm sure as the podcast goes on and as I cover more topics, I will start to go more international. But just understand that this is a general history of American cemeteries. And it's very important to understand that because American cemeteries are not like cemeteries anywhere else in the world. The modern American cemetery is a product of our national consciousness, of our cultural mores, and most importantly, innovation. We invented things here in the United States when it comes to burying our dead that nobody else was doing. Secondly, keep in mind that I'm going to be talking about mainstream cemeteries. There are lots of niche topics, and I will tell you that I have a lot coming up on Native North Americans, American Indians, Native North American Indians, whatever particular name you choose to assign to the group of indigenous people for the United States. I'm going to be working on those stories because obviously there are traditional burials which are outside the Western world, but also the majority of burials that you as a layperson would come across are going to fall into the general Western tradition. As a primarily Judeo-Christian in origin country, keep in mind, too, that most of our practices, even in secular cemeteries, come from a Judeo-Christian background. They follow certain patterns. Even if you were not Judeo-Christian yourself, odds are your cemetery is planned around the way that Judeo-Christian cemeteries are planned. Going back to the first settlements that begin in the United States... You obviously have Jamestown, you have Plymouth, and you get certain patterns that develop in both northern and southern cemeteries. In northern cemeteries, which we focused on far more on this show, you see cemeteries developing around the Puritan tradition. And the Puritan tradition is one, if if you remember your high school history classes, that is very strict, is very rigid, and is very theocratic. So everything is based around religion including the way that towns are laid out, including the way that certain elements are treated. And at the very core of Puritan theology is a certain amount of spiritual anxiety about whether or not you are one of the elect, whether or not you are going to heaven. And you need to live your life in a godly way. And one of the ways that they remind you that there is this ever-present looming fear of burning in the pits of hell is by centrally placing the graveyard. And I say graveyard because at that point, the term cemetery is not widely used. It's going to develop more in the 19th century. I'll talk about that a little bit later. So graveyards in the Puritan tradition of New England are centrally placed on the town common. That way you constantly were passing it and the graveyard served as a memento mori. Memento mori in Latin is a reminder that you too will die. So that constant reminder of this fiery pit of hell that could be awaiting you was a way to keep you on the straight now and keep you in tradition. In the South, things develop a little bit differently. There, you have a much more agrarian society. Things tend to be more spread out, and you're going to get a lot of smaller cemeteries developing in smaller groups. I discuss this a lot when I talk about the cemeteries at places like Mount Vernon and Monticello for example, um, it's a completely different layout. Now, these common burial grounds, often there was only one church associated in it. If you go to places that had more than one church, you do tend to have more diversity of graveyards. I have talked about the tradition in Rhode Island, which Rhode Island was formed by religious separatists. 
there you tend to have a lot more small family cemeteries because Rhode Island was one of the first states that allowed complete religious freedom. And you start to see this in a lot of states that offer the same thing. Maryland and Pennsylvania, for example. Pennsylvania, of course, is founded by Quakers, the Society of Friends. Maryland is founded by Catholics. So there, if you have multiple denominations, if you have Jewish congregations, if you have Catholic congregations, each church is going to form its own churchyard. And there are certain burial traditions that are associated with all of those. In general, all Judeo-Christian religions, whether it is Catholic, Protestant, one of the many Protestant denominations, or Jewish, all tend to orient their burials on an east-to-west axis. Burials are generally going to face east basically because it's seen as not just where the sun rises, but the sun rising is seen as a symbol for resurrection, and it's seen as the place where the second coming, when Christ comes at the end of time, where that is going to come from. This doesn't always happen in cemeteries, but odds are if you pull out your phone and you open it to the Compass app, you're going to find that most burials are still oriented this way. This is something that carries over even into secular cemeteries long after there's no religion because it's always been tradition. That's just the way that they're laid out. This colonial tradition of small either churchyard or town common cemeteries is going to continue through the American Revolution. In the colonial period before America is founded as a nation, this is the tradition. It may not always be one particular religion, but this is the way that they plan cemeteries. All of this starts to change after the American Revolution once we're actually a country for a couple of reasons. The first is, during the colonial period, you had a lot of restrictions on how businesses and corporations were formed. So as a result, the first incorporated cemetery is not established until after the American Revolution. And this is going to happen in 1797 in New Haven, Connecticut, where you have the Grove Street Burial Ground. This is the subject, second episode of the podcast. I go in depth about this, but James Hillhouse, who was a very prominent businessman and politician in New Haven, was very anxious over the overcrowded conditions and the really poor state of the town common burial ground in New Haven. Um, It is now underground. You can still see it in the basement of a church if you are interested. But Hill House established the first incorporated cemetery that was planned. And it was planned in the sense that it had plots for different organizations, the most prominent of them being Yale University. It also was planned in the sense that there was a governing body that was there to ensure that the paths were maintained, that trees were planted, the grass was trimmed, all of the things that he saw not happening with these common burial grounds. So Grove Street is not just the first incorporated cemetery. In many ways, it's the first planned cemetery. And by having plots that were purchased either by organizations or by families, they really changed the way that burials happened. Prior to that, people were buried in the order that they died. So if you die this week and Mrs. Smith down the road dies next week, you two will be buried next to each other. You will not be buried with your husband or wife. You will not necessarily be buried with your children. This is a big step in terms of what the American cemetery will eventually become. Secondly, this is a secular organization, so they are starting to remove burial from the hands of the church, and it's because America, from its foundation, even though it comes from a Judeo-Christian background, is a very secular nation. 
And this shows how the thought process is going to start to shift. So New Haven is really a groundbreaker. It's the first time we have a planned cemetery, but they're not quite there yet. It's still very small. It's still very limited, and they will eventually run out of space. Now, moving forward. In America, you start to have more and more and more free thought. You start to have a lot of really radical thinkers. If you remember back to your high school literature classes, think about the transcendentalists, people like Henry David Thoreau, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, all of these thinkers who are urging people to break through their societal mores and the boundaries of what is seen as acceptable behavior. Along with this, you have a huge religious movement in the United States called the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening had kind of been associated with Methodism. The Second Great Awakening, it's a break where it's looking more towards a communal, freer religion. It is often associated with changing social values in terms of the role that women play, the role that men play, the role that the family plays. It also is very much associated with the outdoors. The Second Great Awakening is often associated with tent revivals. So if you see places like Oak Bluffs in Massachusetts or Ocean Grove in New Jersey, where they have these huge outdoor tabernacles that were campgrounds, these are all relics of that era of the Second Great Awakening. And this idea of nature is going to change how people see death. So prior to that, like I said, it was very much about that memento mori, a reminder that you will die. It was about keeping you on the straight and narrow. Now people started to transition and they saw death as a return to nature, as something that was beautiful, as something that was picturesque. And the picturesque was a movement in art, in literature, in architecture that was very much in tune with this. In many ways, it was about aggrandizing the past, often a past that didn't actually exist. And so ideas started to filter over from Europe. And the biggest idea comes from a place called Père Lachaise. And Père Lachaise, if you have been to Paris, is one of the largest and most elaborate cemeteries that you can see anywhere in Europe. This was an experiment about moving burials outside the city of Paris, where graveyards had become very overcrowded, very dirty, and they were actually sanitary risks, polluting groundwater, Often bodies stopped decomposing because the soil was so overused. This is an important point to make because in Europe and throughout much of history, burial was not a permanent thing. Often it was a temporary, usually seven-year agreement where you essentially rented ground space. And at that point, your body would have decomposed down to mostly skeletal remains. Your remains would be dug up and you would be moved to an ossuary, which was a common spot. And you can see this in the catacombs of Paris, where many remains were put in elaborate designs. Um, the Capuchin church um, is another great example of an ossuary. The idea of permanent burial is 100% an American idea, that you have a final resting place, that you are buried and you remain there. Now, is an American idea. It is not something that America has always been very good at. That's worthwhile pointing out. So as part of this idea of moving things outside of cities, what happens in the 19th century is that the Industrial Revolution hits and cities start to grow. And they start to have the same problem. 
where their cemeteries cannot handle the amount of dead who are moving into cities to work in factories, to work in an industrialized society. So taking a page from the book of the French, what happens is, is 1841, a gentleman called Jacob Bigelow in Boston, Massachusetts, makes the decision that he is going to get a group of investors together to put together a new type of graveyard. And he is going to use the much more picturesque term of cemetery, which comes from the Greek word for sleeping place. Again, remember that picturesque ideology. And this investment will be known as Mount Auburn Cemetery. And Mount Auburn is really where, if you read any general history of cemeteries, this is where they start. Because Mount Auburn is the beginning of the rural cemetery movement. The rural or garden cemetery movement is the idea that, first of all, you are going to have elaborately planned cemeteries, which are outside of cities. They are going to take advantage of the beautiful natural landscape with curvilinear roads, with undulating hills. They are going to have a different governing body, meaning that they are going to have a board of directors, and that if you purchase plot space there, you are going to have a say in how the cemetery is run. They are secular or non-secretarian cemeteries. They do not belong to any particular church denomination. They are also, in this case, a business. They have sales offices where they actually sell plots, removing it from either municipal or church governance. And this is it. This is the biggest innovation that we have in the way that people are buried in most of history. And this catches on like wildfire. And these cemeteries start to pop up and down the East Coast within the next decade and eventually will spread across the country. And what are you going to see in a rural cemetery? So aside from those landscape features I mentioned, there is also a huge emphasis on elaborate monuments. And these elaborate monuments tend to take on what are known as revival styles. Part of that picturesque ideology is that faux past look. So you see things like Egyptian revival, Gothic revival, neoclassical revival, all architectural and design styles of the past which are brought back in funerary monuments. These cemeteries are often kind of criticized as looking cluttered because often you have multiple large monuments all within the same plot where you will have urns and weeping willows and you will have angels, obelisks. You'll have lots and lots of these for each member of the family. And given the continuing high death rates, these are very popular and these plots sell very fast. And there's a lot of one-upmanship as people try to outdo each other with very elaborate monuments and mausoleums, meaning above ground tombs for an individual family. In addition, there's often grand architecture associated with them. Big, beautiful gates, gatehouses, chapels, all of these are very common, and you start to see them in cemeteries like not just Mount Auburn, but Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. Those are the first big three. And like I said, these start to spread across the United States as this popular style grows and grows. Now, the American Civil War happens roughly 20 years after the founding of Mount Auburn. This also is going to revolutionize the way that cemeteries are designed and, more importantly, the way that people are buried. 
there is no plan for the Civil War. The unprecedented amount of death means that the carnage is very difficult to contain. And you can read many accounts of these battles and just how bad the decomposing corpses on the battlefield are. There becomes a cottage industry where embalming for the first time becomes very popular. And some families actually pay to have their loved ones shipped home by train. This is going to be the first war that has a train involved. But also we see the establishment of the first military cemeteries to help deal with the Civil War dead. This massive amount of loss of life, though, continues sort of this idealism about what we today think of as traditional Victorian mourning values, which will really extend throughout the rest of the 19th century. Um, through the turn of the century, Queen Victoria dies in 1901. So really those principles which start with the crown of Queen Victoria in the late 1830s, those that span of 60-odd years really... We call it Victorian because there are a lot of associated things, even though obviously America is a separate country from Great Britain. The art, the architecture, the social practices are all very well defined. So when you tend to think about that Victorian mourning culture, it is most closely associated with what I've just been talking about for the last couple of minutes. Now, towards the end of the 19th century, you do start to see transition again. And there is a seldom talked about intermittent type of cemetery and that is going to be the lawn park cemetery these are often newer sections of rural cemeteries the first one is in cincinnati ohio spring grove cemetery and spring grove was a not very successful rural cemetery which was redesigned by a man named adolf strauch who came over from germany bavaria i believe like i said no notes um, and redesigned it to make it less cluttered, more open. And what he started to do was that you would have a single family monument, whether it's an obelisk or an urn, whatever it might be. And that single monument is surrounded by small, identical monuments, not flush, but very low to the ground, which gave it a more open appearance. And each family member buried there would have one of these small matching stones. And we start to see a transition. We start to see a shift again in how people see death. This is really going to change in the early 20th century. So as we move into the early 20th century, you start to continue to have a shift. One of the big things that happens starting from the mid-19th century on is you have a large immigrant population which moves into the United States. These immigrant populations both cause a population boom, particularly in East Coast cities, but also throughout the Midwest. Chicago, for example, is going to be a hugely influenced by um, the waves of Eastern European immigration in particular. But these groups bring their own burial traditions. They bring their own craftsmanship. And they start to show up in the mid to late 19th century as well. And so it's worth talking about here that everything I have mentioned up until this point, is mainstream Protestant culture. America, for the most part, is a Protestant nation, you know, starting at the very early stages with both the Anglicans that settle in Virginia as well as the Separatist churches and Puritans that settle in New England. 
the Second Great Awakening. All of that is mainstream Protestant culture, separate from Jewish cemeteries, separate from Catholic cemeteries, which have their own burial traditions. And the vast majority of immigrants, starting with the Irish immigrants in the 1840s, continuing on through the late 19th century when you start to have increased amount of Eastern Europeans, both Catholic and Jewish, as well as Italian immigrants, all of these are going to start to shift the way that cemeteries are built, particularly in cities. So someplace like New York, for example, you know, the absolutely massive Catholic cemeteries like Calvary. Calvary is the largest cemetery in the United States. It has four separate sections. This is driven by large numbers of poor immigrants who are dying rapidly of disease. And this is an important thing to remember because cemeteries are, aside from a burial place for the dead, an incredibly educational place in terms of art and architecture that we just talked about. So if you're interested in art and architecture, I mean, I am an architectural historian, first and foremost. That's where much of my interest in cemeteries comes in. But also, if you're interested in demographics, if you're interested in learning about epidemics, if you're interested in learning about the age of mortality or how mortality impacts different populations, there's no place to better understand this than by looking at cemeteries. I remember reading an estimate that something like 40 burials a day were happening in Calvary and they were all Irish immigrants and they were all dying of cholera. It tells a specific story. The same can be said of the advent of vaccines. When you start to see things like the polio vaccine, when you start to see the smallpox inoculation, the number of child deaths under the age of five virtually disappears in cemeteries. So starting around the late 1940s, early 1950s, you see a marked drop in childhood era deaths. That tells you a lot about what the social history of the United States was doing at that particular time. So moving into the 19th century, not only do you start to have a proliferation of ethnic cemeteries, most of them religiously based, you also start to have a shift in American culture in terms of becoming more corporate. While rural cemeteries were businesses, they were not businesses on the level that cemeteries will become. Anybody who's familiar with modern American cemeteries knows that they are a business. There are a handful of gigantic cemetery corporations or death funeral industry corporations that run and maintain the majority of cemeteries today. They run under a couple of different names, but they all have their origins in something that happens in the 19-teens. So 1917, at the height of World War I, again, we have sort of an American crisis because even though America enters World War I a little bit on the late side, they still do have massive casualties. And at this point, we start to see a real distancing from death. So prior to the turn of the century, and even past that point, you had always had the majority of your death care occurring at home. While you may have purchased a coffin, many were homemade. While you may have paid someone to dig the grave, many were homemade. The body was prepared at home. The body was laid out at home. You start to see a funeral industry emerge in the late 19th century, and this happens mainly because in cities... With people living in smaller spaces, it's not as practical to prepare bodies. 
And also, you often have funeral homes that are very close and are very conveniently located. This goes to the next level in 1917 when a guy named Hubert Eaton, who is a very savvy businessman from the North, uh, the Midwest, um, again, mainstream Protestant, has very specific views about religion, um, and he adopts a very rosy, better life, heaven is a green meadow type view of death. And he takes an essentially bankrupt cemetery. And he turns it into a new style of cemetery, which he calls Forest Lawn Memorial Park. And the whole idea behind this is that it streamlines all business into one unit. So your funeral home, your cemetery, your florist, everything is a one-stop shop. So you don't have to run around to the different places when somebody dies. You go to one place and they handle it all. Everything there is very beautiful. You know, the laying out happens in a slumber room. There's not really a mention of death. This is where the sort of modern sanitized view of death comes from. This all stems from Forest Lawn and from Hubert Eaton and what he was selling. He flattened out grave markers. He felt that Victorian cemeteries were depressing, that they were not beautiful. So everything there is flat markers. So it looks like an open field. It makes mowing the grass a lot easier. And memorial parks at this point start to proliferate across the United States. They start to become the norm. Often older cemeteries would put a memorial park section in, and they continue to grow today. Arguably, I would say that this is still one of the more popular versions that you see. So we start to have a much more industrialized state. At the same time, What's happening is, is that older cemeteries now, so as we go into World War II, the older cemeteries are starting to age out of existence. So those beautiful colonial and Victorian Arab graveyards start to deteriorate, and they start to be seen as eyesores. So between the 1930s and the 1950s, you have the great age of cemetery removals. Now, remember, I was talking about permanent burial. That's what was sold. When you bought your cemetery plot, you bought it in perpetuity, which was very different from what they did in Europe. However, in perpetuity sometimes falls by the wayside when your cemetery is seen as abandoned, when your cemetery is seen as an eyesore, or when your cemetery is located in a place that, let's be frank, is very valuable and is very coveted land. So between the 30s and the 50s, you see a lot of cemeteries removed, particularly in urban areas. Also, for a number of WPA projects, which I have talked about some of these in terms of building dams and things like that, the Tennessee Valley Authority. San Francisco is probably the most extreme example of this. I did do a full episode on San Francisco, but odds are if you live in an older city, not to, I don't want to say just East Coast, but definitely East Coast, Chicago. It is very difficult to put a spade down and to start digging beneath your house and not come up with an unpleasant surprise. Because being able to effectively fully remove cemeteries is something that nobody was very good at. You read about this all the time. I'm actually going to be covering another example of this next week. But cemetery removals are a big part of... What we today think of as urban renewal, 
because cemeteries are seen as undesirable neighbors. And quite frankly, this isn't true. If you remember back to what I said shortly ago about Victorian cemeteries being on the outskirts of cities, they were very desirable because at the time, they were one of the few green spaces that existed. Today, we think of places like Central Park, but those really weren't what put in place until the late 19th century. Prior to that, rural cemeteries were the first open public green space, and they were visited by hundreds of thousands of people every year. Greenwood in Brooklyn was second only to Niagara Falls as the second most popular attraction in the state of New York. And there's a lot of reasons for this. First of all, again, it's part of that new second grade awakening thinking. There's a social consciousness. It's, they're seen as clean and sanitary and groundbreaking. But also because they are places of extreme beauty. They are very lovely. And certainly with the ongoing pandemic, people have discovered them again. You can read numerous articles that have been published over the past six months talking about how people are rediscovering the joys of having a cemetery to explore in their neighborhood. So unfortunately, many cemeteries are lost during this point. And overall, we just see a big, because this is certainly, in terms of urban renewal, it's something that, that damages countless buildings. You have entire neighborhoods that are lost. The construction of the highway system in the 1950s will also take out a lot of cemeteries. And this brings us to the next important topic that you need to understand if you are interested in cemeteries, and that is the idea of preservation. A lot of the issues stem from the fact that, unfortunately, cemeteries are very expensive and very complex to maintain, particularly older cemeteries that have these big, grand monuments. When the organization runs out of land to sell, because that's the only problem with a for-profit cemetery is that you are reliant on grave sales to pay your bills, or other extenuating circumstances happen, Often when the money runs out, you stop mowing the grass. You stop maintaining things. If a tree branch falls, tree branch falls. And the bankruptcy of cemeteries is a huge issue. The other issue is that America becomes an increasingly mobile society. So as a lot holder, you are responsible for the monument that is on your lot. This is something that most people don't realize. They assume that if something happens to their lot, the cemetery will maintain it. Well, technically, it's not their job. They maintain the roads, they mow the grass, but they are not responsible for anything on an individual lot because you chose to put it there. The cemetery, given their choice, would just have a flat piece of grass there and they wouldn't have to worry about it. So if families move away and they're no longer coming back to visit grandma and grandma's marker starts to deteriorate and is toppled in a winter storm, it's not going to get fixed and it's going to sit there and eventually the graveyard starts to look shabby and it starts to deteriorate. Just keeping the grass mown, and I say this because I've definitely consulted with some cemeteries about their, their contracts for grass mowing, it's unbelievably expensive just to keep the grass mown in cemeteries, um, let alone maintenance on large buildings like chapels and offices and things like that. Even maintaining small community cemeteries becomes a challenge. And you might say, well, sure, you know, you have storms, things get knocked down. Water is the universal enemy. Does not matter what your grave markers are made out of, whether they are made of slate or wood or marble or granite. Just about any material that you make grave markers out of is going to deteriorate due to water. 
more so if you live in a cold place because when water gets into cracks and freezes it expands and contracts and those can break stone those can destroy stone vegetation can cause cracks can cause damage I haven't talked much on this episode, but you have all of these materials, and none of these materials is impervious to this type of destruction. Earlier gravestones tend to be slate. Slate was the very popular material that you see for what you now think of as probably traditional New England gravestones from the 17th and 18th century. With the rural cemetery movement, marble becomes king. Often many rural cemeteries actually ban slate because it was seen as being old-fashioned. Um, marble is on the softer side and marble unfortunately does deteriorate quite badly, particularly in modern conditions caused by pollution. So the different chemicals in smoke and smog get into the atmosphere. And when it rains, that rain is slightly acidic from the sulfuric acid that's in those fumes. As a result, sulfuric acid, when it interacts with marble, forms a crystalline substance called gypsum which is very desirable in drywall, not desirable on statues. But that's why often if you look at marble statues, it looks like they're melting. The most modern material is going to be granite. Granite is the shiny, polished stone that most gravestones are made out of today. It's definitely the hardest and most durable, but it's also not indestructible. It depends a lot on the quality of it, depends on the size, depends on the dimensions, depends on a lot of things. You can also see certain vernacular materials. So wood, as I mentioned, concrete is very popular for homemade gravestones. Brick is sometimes used, particularly for vaults and things like that. There are lots of other materials, metals, tons of other things that you can make grave markers out of. Um, Not as common, but they certainly exist. And all of them are things that need to be preserved. And a lot of them require a certain skill set. I'm certainly not a stonemason. Odds are you probably aren't either. Cemetery preservation is something that takes a long time to come around. And much of the damage that we see in cemeteries today was made by well-intentioned people 60, 70 years ago who thought that they were fixing something. So if you had a marble stone that was broken, they tried to use concrete to put it back together. Remember, I already said concrete doesn't very really fare well because when water gets in, it expands and contracts and it breaks the stone. So often people who are not informed about the materials, people who are not trained, um, whether it's a, just a general caretaker, whether it's a groundskeeper, a lot of the damage that we see in cemeteries today was done probably in the 40s and 50s by someone who really had great intentions, who thought that they were doing something good. The historic preservation movement as we think of it today, just in general, not just for cemeteries, really starts in the late 50s, early 60s in response to a lot of architecture that is lost as part of that urban renewal process that I was talking about. The National Historic Preservation Act is passed in 1966. Um, Grand Central Station is kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of people really wanting to stop these grand pieces of the past from being demolished. But the National Historic Preservation Act offers protection to historic resources by placing them on the National Register for Historic Places. 
cemeteries are technically eligible for the National Register, but under very specific circumstances. So I have a full episode about the National Register in cemeteries. Generally, they're eligible either under Criterion A for contributing to the broad patterns of our history. So they contribute by being really specific in terms of urban planning, city planning, trying to keep cities sanitary. Think about what I said about Mount Auburn. But also under Criterion C for elaborate funerary architecture. Um, also because you, know, you have really famous architects who are also building cemetery architecture. Not every cemetery is going to be eligible, and the National Register is not a cure-all. But the very existence of the National Register definitely raised awareness about protecting resources. So this is when you start to have a more dedicated group who is looking to study cemeteries in terms of their significance to history. What can they tell us about the past? Um, You have the Association for Gravestone Studies, which is formed in 1977, which is going to be the big ticket professional organization that is looking to form an academic base for people who are doing research on gravestones and burial traditions, people who are looking to preserve cemeteries moving forward. They're going to be kind of like the go-to organization because prior to that, it was really just individuals who were doing their best. It wasn't necessarily any kind of organized movement. As cemeteries became more and more commercial, it became more and more difficult. There was a widening gap between historic cemeteries and modern cemeteries. And this was really highlighted for me this week because I was talking to the host of another podcast, um, Small Town Murder, over Instagram. uh, And the host, Jimmy, actually mentioned, he's like, well, you know, he grew up in Arizona and lives there. And he said, you know, cemeteries there are so unlike cemeteries on the East Coast. And I think it's important to remember that as America has expanded and diversified, our burial traditions have as well. So if you go someplace on the West Coast, while there may be some things that you see that are very similar to what you see on the East Coast, there are some things that you will never see. Cemeteries certainly continue today. Um, Following World War II, the enlarging veteran population necessitates the expansion of the military cemeteries which had started around the civil war Uh, back in june i did a four-part series starting with the civil war going up until the modern day where i looked at military cemeteries there's a lot there Um, but we have military cemeteries both here in the united states um, which are accessible to every veteran as well as overseas military cemeteries for burials of the dead of the two world wars as well as a couple of other minor skirmishes, mainly the Spanish-American War, which are maintained by the American Battle Monuments Commission. Because so many veterans served in World War II that as they started to age out of the population in the 60s and 70s, the need for a place for them to be buried increased. And the National Cemetery System is something that is still growing and expanding today. They do offer free burial in any American cemetery to honorably discharged members of the military um, and also those who are buried in private cemeteries are entitled to a grave marker marking their grave as well regardless of where they choose to be buried 
Also, starting in the late 19th century and continuing up through today, one of the biggest shifts we have seen is a movement away from traditional in-ground burial and the rise of cremation. Cremation, which was essentially non-existent prior to the 1870s, has grown to incredible popularity to the point where now upwards of 60% of Americans are choosing cremation over traditional in-ground burial. And this, again, comes with a shift towards secularism. There is a major shift in ideology where before it was seen as a very pagan practice. It has become more and more popularized over time. I talk extensively about cremation in um, the episode I did last month about Dr. Julius Lemoyne, who founded the first crematorium in America um, outside of Pittsburgh. This has also led to a change in cemetery landscapes where columbariums and scattering gardens for cemeteries that are older and are running out of burial space this is a way for them to maximize above ground space and also maximize profits and this is one of the things that's very important in terms of innovation to keep cemeteries alive so that they don't go bankrupt now in terms of cemeteries of today what do we see well there's an incredible push towards green burial And I'm going to be doing an episode coming up probably next month about the green burial movement, expanding on the idea that we should eliminate a lot of the materials that go into the ground. We should eliminate a lot of the chemicals that are used in embalming and focus on a more natural approach to death in terms of burial that is less harmful to the environment and is less abusive in terms of the resources that are required for the death care industry. You also have a really wide range of sort of unusual burial practices from burial at sea to turning cremated remains into diamonds. There there are a lot of different things that that will definitely be explored at some point on this particular podcast. Overall, however, I think the biggest thing is, is that cemeteries today have to diversify in terms of how they are presented. Many cemeteries, for example, are arboretums. They are huge wildlife habitats. For the same reason that they were valued as green space a century and a half ago, they are now seen as a place to renew nature, even in urban environments, where you can have an incredible diversity of trees and flowers and bushes. You can have populations of deer and fox and raccoon who are living within cities who otherwise would not be able to survive because they don't have the option and they don't have the green space. Cemeteries have become a place of tourism. Taphophilia, or so-called tombstone tourism, is a booming industry where you have people doing different types of themed tours. You have people doing performances for music, for art, for theater, all being set in cemeteries. These really valuable resources are looking at ways to maximize on their space and utilize themselves not just as an outdoor sculpture garden, but as a venue. Weddings have become a very popular use. In fact, the Bigelow Chapel at Mount Auburn Cemetery, which we started our discussion of rural cemeteries with, was recently expanded to include a event space because it was becoming so popular for both weddings and funerals. And so there's now a gathering space attached to the chapel. All of these are helping cemeteries, which otherwise are running out of space, are running out of sources of revenue to survive into the future.
overall cemeteries in the United States are pretty unique because they remain a very vital aspect of our culture. They remain something that is very much in the news, something that is very much discussed. They are also continuing to evolve, something which in other cultures they tend to establish one tradition and they stick with it. American cemeteries are a constantly evolving. They are a very dynamic element. And even though we start to see a certain practice or a homogeneous unit at certain points in history, there's still a lot of innovation still happening. Overall, Cemeteries 101, I just want you to understand what you are seeing and what you are looking at. This is more than a hole that we bury someone in. It's more than just a grave. It has a lot of different reasons for it being there culturally. There's a lot of information that we can take away from it in terms of learning about our social history, our history in terms of public health, a lot of those aspects, all of which have been explored. The previous 49 episodes go into just about everything that I've discussed in this past hour, plus lots more things that I didn't have time to talk about. Um, you know, tools for preservation, master planning in cemeteries, funeral railroads. There are lots of other topics that I didn't get to. But this is a nice, short, under an hour general history of American cemeteries that hopefully will give you a little bit of insight. As you move forward, I will probably refer back to this episode if you need a real quickie, you know, just behind the scenes so you can understand a particular term that I'm making a reference to. Also, what I want to do is I want to create some infographics that have really good pictures so that as a auditory medium, this podcast can also have a guide on social media where you can look at things and you can immediately see exactly what I'm talking about because I know it's not always easy to understand what I'm discussing whether it be a material like white bronze, whether it be a style like lawn park. That way, if you are going out into cemeteries, you can look at something and you can immediately identify it. As always, thank you so much for your ratings and reviews. Uh, If you have not done so, I know it's a pain, but sign into whatever platform you are using. I know most of you, it's Apple Podcasts because I see my numbers, but whether it's Spotify, whether whatever it might be. Take the time to log in and give a review. It really does help me be far more visible to more people, and I would love to spread the word. Feel free to follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on Facebook, and Tomb period with period a period view on Instagram. Like I said, over the weekend to celebrate my anniversary, I will also be doing an increased amount of postings. Uh, I've been posting a lot recently, particularly on Instagram. Uh, You guys have been incredibly generous um, and very supportive. I'm trying to post fun, interesting little puzzles that I find, unique examples of funerary architecture, lots of fun stuff. As always, have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View.